Last Sunday, we met the Colossian church through the Apostle Paul's letter. What do you remember about the Colossian church? Have you read the entire Colossians as I recommended? Let me see how many of you read the entire Colossians. Let me see your hand. Raise your hand. Angela, raise your hand. Only Angela. Enjoy. All right. All right. At least two people encourages me and listen to pastors, you know, advice. That's good. You know, rest of you, I don't know. Uh, I love Colossians for this church was small but significant. This insignificantly humble church contains a humongous important Christology among all Pauline epistles. And last week we saw Paul's praise of Colossians, and today we will see Paul's prayer and petition for the Colossians. Prayer is a precious and powerful. We all know the importance of prayer, and we often feel guilty about not praying enough. But what do we really say to God in our prayers? What is your most constant prayer? What do you pray most of the time? Apostle Paul said today that he never stopped praying for Colossians and constantly prayed for them. So from Paul's constant prayer for the Colossians, we learn the focus of our prayer. That is what we must constantly pray for. With that, let's read our text together. First, um, Colossians chapter 1, verse 9 to 14. Let's read it responsibly. So I'm going to read first. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of His will, through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of son he loves, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sin. Verse 9 to 12 is another long sentence in the Colossians. It has a 69 words. And to me, this is a long, complex petition with many clauses and the participles. This looks like a, a beautiful diamond with many facets. And each facet of a diamond is so beautiful and connected to others. To appreciate this complex, beautiful, complexly beautiful petition of Apostle Paul, let me use a metaphor of a muscle. And if you are health, you are, you are medical people, please listen with a grain of salt, okay? I'm just making metaphor, okay? So do you know what muscle is? According to definition, dictionary, according to dictionary, muscle, we have a diction, definition in the web? Okay, okay. <laughs> muscle is a band or bundle of fibrosis tissues in a human or animal body that has the ability to contract, producing movement in or maintaining the position of a parts of the body. I want to tell you that prayer is our spiritual muscle. Do you know prayer is our spiritual muscle? 
the more and stronger prayer you have, the stronger, you know, I mean, prayer we have, a stronger, you know, spiritual muscle you will have. So using this metaphor, let me define prayer in this way. <clears throat> prayer is a band of organic tissues of a faith that has the ability to connect with God, producing the movement of the Spirit in and maintaining the posture of love in the body of Christ. So today, from Paul's constant prayer and petition for the Colossian church, I want to share with you the spiritual tissues, spiritual tissues of a prayer, our spiritual muscle. And it is my prayer that we recognize the beauty and power of a prayer and rededicate our lives to exercising and building up the spiritual muscles for the rest of 2022, the final quarter of the year. I wish I have some good, well-defined muscle to show you and to point it out, but just imagine, okay, when I talk about muscle today. Okay. I used to have uh, some muscles, but they move different parts of the body. Now, the most central spiritual tissue in prayer is God's will. It's God's will. Look at the verse 9. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all the wisdom and understanding that Spirit gives. You know, will of God is, will of God is the center of not just prayer, but everything. That's why our Lord Jesus showed us in his Gethsemane prayer that not my will, but your will be done. And also Jesus taught us the first thing we pray in the Lord's prayer is, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So central focus and main fiber of a prayer is the will of God. So that means this, prayer does not align with the will of God, or prayer does not aim in the will of God, it's not a prayer. It's a waste of time. It's a failure. And today, notice the strong language of Paul's petition for the will of God. You know, Paul did not ask God to you know, inform Colossians about his will. That's not what he asked for. He actually asked you know, God to inspire them about the God's will. So he used the language of a fill. Fill them with the knowledge of God's will. To fill means something is empty. As one commentator said, this Paul's request of God's filling suggests that there's some kind of spiritual vacuum in us that needs to be filled. And it's so true, without the will of God, our life will never be fulfilled, but always feel empty. Without filling our hearts and minds with the will of God, we cannot go far in our life journey, and we will always get lost and frustrated. And when Paul used the language of feeling, you know, once again, he's not talking about mere superficial knowledge about will of God, but he was talking about saturated knowledge of God's will. And for this full conviction, so Paul was, you know, asking God to not just inform them, Colossians, about his will, but convict them, convict them, and inspire them about God's will, for that, Paul used two other terms to accentuate this knowledge of the will of God. And these two other terms is wisdom and understanding. So, knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. 
These are actually well-known Jewish trio that points out the ultimate truth of God. We saw them in the Messianic promise of Isaiah. So if you look at the Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2 says, Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, spirit of counsel and of might, spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. When the Holy Spirit rested on Jesus, Jesus received the wisdom, understanding, and knowledge of the Spirit and realized the will of God. Jesus did not just obey the will of God. Jesus loved the will of God with all of his heart and mind and soul. And that's why one time in John chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus said, My food is to do the will of God who sent me and finished his work. You know, for Jesus, doing God's will was like eating his favorite food. Why? Because Jesus was so convinced and convicted of wisdom and understanding and knowledge of God's will. How about us? Do you feel like doing God's will, like eating your favorite food? How much do you fill yourself with the knowledge of God's will? You know, I, I suspect that some of us like to fill only quarter tank or minimum level of our life with the knowledge of God's will. We just want to get by. You know, we don't want to be saturated and permeated with the will of God. And then, so let me briefly explain the, each of these three terms and then paint a picture about Paul's intense desire for Colossians and all of us to know the will of God. So first word is wisdom. In Greek, it's Sophia. Simply means insight or skill. It's an applied knowledge. The second word is sunesis. It's a compound word. Sun is a with, asis is a being. So it's a connecting dot, or you might say holistic knowledge. And then third is a knowledge. This is a little interesting because the Greek has a term for knowledge, which is a gnosis. But Paul used a very accentuated word for knowledge, which is epignosis. Epignosis. You know, epi, what do you, you know, epicenter? You know, the uh, on, the core, original center, on. So epignosis means a contact knowledge or experiential knowledge. You know, there is a saying among the theologians that theology is not taught, but cut. What do you think about that? Theology is not taught, but cut. What does it mean? You don't just learn about theology like an object or lesson. When you really learn theology of true theology of God, you have to catch it. You have to catch his spirit as if a theology is a living thing. It's not just subject. It's not just intellectual object or discussion, item in your brain. It is a living thing. It has to touch you and make a contact with your heart and soul. That's the epignosis, contact knowledge. Together, wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, they mean that God's will is insightful, holistic, connecting, proven, foundational, and central knowledge to bless our life. That's why Paul constantly prayed for Colossians, and rest of the passage shows us the will of God is a main central tissue of our spiritual muscle. And then let me make it clear. The basic purpose of our prayer 
is not to bend God's will to mine, but to bow and mold my will into his will. You know, a Dutch Christian, the great Christian witness during the World War II, Corey Tambum once said this, the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. And Corey Tambum lived during, through the uh, World War II and saw that everything other than God's will was sinking sand. Now, Apostle Paul would say that when our prayer is focused on the will of God, we will, not only, we will have a not only safest, but actually splendid life. That is a second spiritual tissue of a prayer. So if God's will is a central fiber of a prayer, our spiritual muscle, the next connected fiber to that muscle is glorious work. Glorious work. Look at the next verse. Verse 10. So that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way. In Greek text, live life worthy of the Lord actually means walk worthy of the Lord. Walk worthy of the Lord. Once again, to walk with God is a well-known Jewish expression of a godly, faithful life in the Old Testament. For instance, Genesis 5.24 says that Enoch walked faithfully with God and he was more, no more because God took him away. And the Genesis 9 you know, when described of Noah, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his generation, and he walked faithfully with God. And Genesis 17, 1, when Abraham was 99 years old and he was complacent with his own little dream, and God came to awake his faith, God told Abraham, I'm almighty, God Almighty, walk before me faithfully and be blameless. So to live, for God's will means to walk with God. And here we must realize an important biblical fact and promise. That is, when we try to obey God's will, guess what? God is so close to us and walks with us in every step of our faith journey. You know, seeking God's will in prayer actually brings God's presence closer to us. You know, when you really seek God's will, God will not just let, leave us and, oh, you figure it out. No, God comes next to us and helps us. In the process, guess what happened? Our spiritual intimacy with God grows and deepens. When you walk with God, your spiritual intimacy with God will deepen. Let me illustrate this. During the pandemic, like many people, I felt helpless and almost hopeless. Some of you remember that uh, in 2020, we started a daily devotional called the Daily Breath, and we had it for you know, more than six months, and I almost got burned out. Because no seminary, no you know, uh, Christian expert ever prepared the pastor to do ministry during the pandemic. So I desperately prayed. But sometimes praying, even at my so-called official prayer chair, would not release all the anxiety and the pressures in me. So without anybody telling me, I just started walking outside. So I began prayer walking. You know prayer walking? You walk and pray. I did a prayer walking. And in process, I became a daily walker. Daily walker. Do you know your pastor 
walks more than 10 steps, uh, 10,000 steps, not 10 steps, 10,000 steps a, a day. That is uh, incredible. You know, for me, it's a surprise, unexpected blessing in disguise during the pandemic. I became a walker. Seriously, I'm a walker. You know, Paul Walker, you know. It's an inside Texas joke. You know, anyway. And then I came across a book in 2020, and the book is uh, In Praise of a Walking. The author, Shane O'Mara, is a neuroscientist and professor of experimental brain research at Trinity College in uh, uh, Dublin, uh, England. And the O'Mara argues that walking influences many aspects of our cognition. Now, we, how we think and the reason, remember, read, and write. In particular, there is a vital relationship between movement of the body and flow of thinking. So Omera is a kind of evangelist for walking, and for his gospel is a walking. And he said walking is a plainly good for body, mind, and spirit, and it will repay us in more ways than we know. And so now let's look at his you know, quote there. We know that walking improves your mood more than you think it does. Walking might also be a kind of a behavioral inoculant against a depression, as well as against the slow, malign changes that mold your personality for the worse because you are sedentary. And walking also brings with it marvelous problem-solving powers. Your creative impulses fostered by walking will help not the problems of life forever. And then he's right. Because as I was reading that, I remember the uh, Immanuel Kant, a.k.a. the father of a modern philosophy, or at least in you know, a modern epistemology. You know what Immanuel Kant was known for? Daily walk. He walked every day so punctually the farmers in his town knew the time of the day by looking at him. And no wonder he became so smart. And Shane O'Mara goes further and talks about the best walking called social walking. So let me read one final quote of him. Social walking can be a best of a walking, whether towards a common goal or just a sauntering along the uh, no particular place to go. True charms of a pedestrianism does not lie in the walking or in the scenery. But in the talking, the walking is good to keep the blood and the brain stirred up and active. Scenery and oozy smells are good to bear in upon a man, un unconscious and unobtrusive charm and solace to eye and soul and sense. But the supreme pleasure comes from the talk. The greatest walk is social walk. And the reason for that is the greatest pleasure of all come from talk. Once again, that reminds me of uh, you know, the great Christians like uh, C.S. Lewis and his uh, you know, Oxford inkling friends like uh, J.R. Tolkien because they frequently took the, week, took the weekend walking trips together. You know, England, I dreamed that one day I do the same thing, that in England, they have uh, many pubs. 
that functions as roadside in. So C.S. Lewis and Tolkien's, they go to basically, you know, go uh, take a Saturday, Sunday off, and they just walking and then talking, and then when they're thirsty, they go to pubs and, you know, and then drink a nice, you know, German drink, and then they continue, and then evening comes, they have an empty, they just rest. Wow, that's my kind of, you know, weekend. And the uh, most significant conversation between C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien happened during their walks in many parts and many countryside. And then, I, then, then in the uh, C.S. Lewis biography, Surprised by Joy, there was a very uh, 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 short, comical you know, uh, uh, quote from his uh, diary. So September 28, 1931. C.S. Lewis talking about his uh, a I went to the, quote, I went to the Whipsnader Park Zoo one sunny morning. When I set out, I did not believe that Jesus Christ is Son of God. And when we reached the zoo, I did. End of the quote. So he said, before the walk, I wasn't Christian. After the walk, I'm born again Christian. I now believe Jesus Christ is Son of God. During that walk, the wonderful, life-transforming, conversation took place. You know, prayer for the will of God leads us to glorious walk with God, and the walk with the Lord will always lead us to intimate talk with God. So, if you forget anything today, try to make a habit of walking and talking and listening to God. You know, Genesis 15.5, there is a verse that when Abraham was uh, moping because he's been promised land and that God didn't give him a uh, you know, promised son. And uh, when God came in, you know what? God, uh, God did to the depressed you know, uh, Abraham. Look at the Genesis. Do we have the verse? Genesis 15, 5, verse 5 says, God took him outside and told Abraham, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. You know, God made uh, Abraham walk outside, come out of in a room, walk outside, and made him look at the scar and uh, count them. So by the way, actually, I, that's what I do, you know, several nights uh, a week. I go out, I walk, and uh, I see the dim starlight in, the, in our city, and I say, God, is that what Abraham saw? It's the same sky. And the God is the same yesterday and today forever. So next time you feel overwhelmed, whatever pressures and whatever anxiety, go out. You know, walk around even the balcony or whatever and look up and see what kind of God you believe. Now, Guess what the faithful walk and intimate talk with God brings next? Third fiber of a spiritual muscle or prayer is a good fruit. Look at the uh, second half, verse 10. So that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. The third result that Apostle Paul envisions for prayer is a fruitfulness in good work and growth in the knowledge of God. You know, some commentators think that uh, this sentence expresses two separate petitions. I actually think the good fruits and growth in knowledge of God, they go hand in hand. 
Because earlier in the uh, Colossians 1.6, Paul said the gospel was bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. So Paul was saying that what is true of the gospel in the world, also true in the life of uh, Colossians. Now, I want us to remember one important thing. That is the New Testament faith never separate theology from ethic and ethics from theology. There is no such a thing as a dead orthodoxy or barren orthodoxy. Any theological belief does not express and enhance the moral ethical behavior is not a biblical. It's not, not a biblical. Let me tell you. The theology doesn't make you more loving and kind and helpful to others. It's not a Christian theology. Theology without ethics is a demonic and hypocritical. And I'm afraid America, we have this demonic theology from right-wing Christians. At the same time, ethics without theology is also dangerous. Hollow. It's a hyper-humanistic. That danger, I also see from the you know, extreme liberals. So truth and love go together in the Bible. And our Lord Jesus clearly connected the faith and fruit together. Remember in the, his uh, Sermon on Mount, Jesus said, you shall know the tree by its fruit, Matthew 7, 16. And his last teaching to disciples in John chapter 15, Jesus repeatedly said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain me, I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from you, you can do nothing. And again, verse 8, Jesus said, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit in showing yourself to be my disciple. So Jesus expects his disciples then and now to bear much fruit. Why? Why? Because Jesus is the most powerful, creative product tree of a life. You connected to Jesus, his love and life will come out of you and will help you to bear the fruit. Now, what is a fruit? What is a fruit? A good fruit is edible and also delicious. What is your favorite fruit? Right now, I love Concord grapes. Do you guys know Concord grapes? No? By the way, in Texas, I love a watermelon. In Texas, nothing, I mean, you don't have to pick a watermelon. Just somewhere, any watermelon is good in Texas. Almost, you know? And then summer white peach, yes. And then autumn comes, juicy Concord grapes. And then winter comes, juicy pear is ready. You know? So what is the fruit? Fruit exists for people to enjoy. Now, fruit means that we enjoy, right? With that, let me ask you, do people enjoy you? Do people enjoy you? Are you edible? Are you a safe, savory, substantial, sympathetic to others? Or are you sour, selective, and self-promoting? What kind of fruit are you? You know, I want to be uh, clear on this. Don't confuse the fruitfulness of a life with a success and popularity. By fruit, Paul did not mean a successful career, presentable social status, and comfortable relationships. 
You know, a great fruit, according to American dream, is not necessarily good fruit in kingdom of God. So because your life is going well, don't think, you know, oh, I am fruitful. Maybe in the worldly sense you are fruitful, but are you really fruitful in the spiritual sense in the kingdom of Christ? By fruit, Paul means the life that radiates the kindness and goodness of Jesus' love. You know, John Bunyan, the author of the uh, Pilgrim's Progress, once said this, If my life is fruitless, it doesn't matter who praises me. And if my life is fruitful, it doesn't matter who criticizes me. Amen? Because your parents say, you're doing well. Or your friends say, you, wow, you're lucky. Or you're doing, you know, you, you, you're making, you know, has, 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 you know, has, you know, whatever, you know. You're doing great. That doesn't mean you are fruitful. Same thing. Because your children are doing well, parents, that doesn't mean you are fruit or your children are fruit. But if somehow people see and taste flavor of Jesus in me, even if the whole world is against me, I am a fruit. Amen? I hope for us to become a fruit to each other and to our VIP. So let me ask this question. Can Jesus offer you as is a fruit to the world? Can Jesus offer you as a fruit today? And fourth and final fiber of a prayer, a tissue of a prayer, is a great endurance and patience. Look at the verse 11. Being strength, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have a great endurance and patience. Prayer brings not only growth and fruitfulness, but also power of God to believers. Prayer makes us not only sweet, but also strong. You know, guess what kind of superpower God gives to his children, those who love him and want to serve his, his purposes. God gave them power to love. The most incredible power in the universe is a power to love. When God strengthens us with his power according to his glorious might, God does not give us external power, but much more internal power. The power called the endurance and the patience to overcome external circumstances. You know, the English words are great endurance and patience. In, in Greek, actually, it's all endurance and all patience, meaning God strengthening us will give us necessary endurance and patience in every challenging circumstance and every tough relationship. So let me briefly say, what's the difference between endurance and patience? You know, endurance in Greek is upomone. It's, it's a compound word. Do we have that one? Upo mone. Upo is under. Mone is a state of I. And the patience is another compound word. Macrothumia. Macro, you know, macroeconomic, microeconomic, big. And thumia is so thumus. That means uh, breath or nostril breath. So endurance is a perseverance toward the circumstance, whereas a patience is toward people. So endurance implies a not succumbing to the pressure. 
So endurance is related to hope. You hope for the better future and change. Whereas a patience, it is related to love. Literally, it means a long breath. It's more like a long sigh. That's the patience. And parents, we have done a lot of, uh, you know, right? Together, they mean perseverance in rough trials and tough relationships. And then let me briefly share my testimony. I'm grateful to God for my calling to be a pastor of his church. Why? Because I will have a bigger mansion in heaven than most of you. You know, I received the reward already. The reward of God for me being a pastor, he changed me slowly and surely and steadily through my pastoring life. You know, it's tough to be a pastor because, by the way, I don't recommend, uh, you know, I'm the usually one when college students, somebody that, oh, you know, I, you know, I feel like God is calling me to ministry. I'm the party pooper. I say, no, don't go to seminary. What are you talking about? Get a job, work. You need to know the life, you know. So I'm an anti-seminary. I'm sorry, we have a seminary dean here, and I'm speaking. Yeah, but reason I, I don't recommend many people to become a pastor is that being a pastor means a great deal of responsibility. And you will face the severe judgment of God and your wife. And, uh, you know, you don't know what kind of severe judgment I go through my wife every week, every Sunday. After, you know, she already called me out last week. Don't tell people to come to you when they don't have a friend. You know, only God can do it. And Jesus, who are you to, you know, call, tell people to come to you? All right, you're right. Severe judgment, you know. I don't think God needs to judge me. I already judge. I'm already judged, okay? Yeah? Yeah? And uh, among all professionals, being a pastor is a hard because we have, you know, pastor is also professional. So there's a professional side that I don't know, you know, I take it seriously. But one thing pastor stands out and all of the professional is that we have a personal side. You cannot be a pastor without being a personal. You can't be a professor without being personal. You know, it's easy to be a good professor. You know, I was one time. Because it's so easy to be a good professor because simply you just, uh, you know, scare them at the beginning and then, you know, change all the assignment to the easier one. And then they're going to give you whatever, five and uh, my, my, rate myprofessor.com. I was one of the highest in my school. You know, it's so easy to be a good professor. And seriously, it's just, you know, students are so gullible. You can easily, undergrads, uh, they, are, they, they are like high school students. I'm sorry. These days, undergrad is more like high school students. All right? Prophet, pastor is a different thing. You have to pray. Why? Pastoring will expose your limit. Your limit as, you know, you think you have a love for other people? Let me see when God brings a difficult people to your life. You know, this sort of, a, oh, why couldn't he join the other church? Why did you come to our church kind of people? Dun, 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 dun. And then, you know, 
Pastor, can you have talk? You go and meet in Starbucks, and you are a prisoner of this maniac for like a... Anyway, I'm sorry if those of you met me in the Starbucks. I'm not talking about you. All right? Now I think we all meet a boba tea. Yeah, bo I like a boba tea place better than Starbucks. But point is, the great reward of being a pastor, God expand and stretch my endurance and patience. And through the struggling people, I see the love of Christ. At the end, let me tell you, I know we are not all likable. In the Spirit of God, you all become a lovable. So no matter what kind of a, you know, baggage you have, I can tell you, with the patience and endurance of the Holy Spirit, we can love each other. I can love you. I do love you. Yeah, troublemakers, I love you. I love you. Yeah, I'm especially looking at the troublemakers right now. Anyway, uh, so this is why, without shame, I, I really encourage everybody to become a shepherd. Those of you new to Forest, you know our church's vision? to be a good ship to Jesus and eventually become a good shepherd to other people. Because otherwise, how are you going to experience a Christ-likeness in you? Being a shepherd is not an option in our church. If you're in our church for a few years and you don't become a shepherd, either I fail, you fail, we fail, but we're going to you know, doubly intensify the soul. Who is not a shepherd? Raise your hand. People who is not a shepherd, raise your hand. I know who you are. Raise your hand. Raise your... What is this? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Let me tell you, God expects you to be a shepherd so that you can experience the patience and endurance of the Holy Spirit. Amen? I am the example. I told you many times. My relatives, they don't believe that I'm a pastor. No? Every time I go to Korea... The one relative said, what do you do? I already answered that question five times. He already asked, what do you do? Because his memory of me was well, very bad. But anyway, <laughs> let, me bring, let me go to the conclusion. I'm sorry. Oh, man. The end result of knowing and doing will of God is give thanks to God. The end of all theology and prayers is a doxology. Look at the verse 12. Giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sin. You know, ultimately, we cannot separate the will of God from the person of God or purpose of, uh, purpose of God from his person of God. To obey, to obey God's will, we must observe His ways and wonders. To the question that why God's will must be the best thing for me and why my prayer is all about God's, pursuing God's will, it's because of who God is. Who God is. You know, the Bible says that God graciously qualifies you to share, to share in the inheritance of all the holy people. Paul is talking about God is calling Gentiles to join the people of God, the Israel. 
It's not we qualified ourselves to be God's people. God graciously qualified us to be in His people. And then He rescued us from dominion of darkness into the kingdom of light. And this passage, verse 9 to 14, is full of a gift of God's grace, knowledge, wisdom, understanding, life that is worth pleasing God, good good fruit, growing, strengthened, endurance, and patience, and qualified inheritance, on and on and on. Our God is good. Nobody loves us more than our God. And that's why will of God matters. You know, oftentimes uh, people, especially young people, ask me, you know, Pastor Paul, how can I discover will of God for my life? You know, the main thing to find about God's will is to be willing. Because once you know God's heart and want to love Him, you don't have to worry about God's, finding God's will. Sooner or later, God will show to you. And the most of God's will is already revealed in the Scripture. And if you wonder about how to find the God's will in a particular case, specific God's will in a particular case, take a seven reality of experiencing God. Then you will know how Holy Spirit revealed God's will through the Scripture and prayer and community and the circumstance. But let me tell you this. God rescued us from dominion of darkness and brought us into a kingdom of a light that reigned by his son. Dear brothers and sisters, following God's will is not an option. It's the only way. It's the only way. Because the Bible says very clearly the world and its desires and passions will eventually all pass away. But the only one who does the will of God lives forever. And God loves us so much. And God wants to really experience his heart and then participate his kingdom and fulfills his will. More than ever, this world is broken. This generation, this country is a totally dysfunctional. Even Christians and churches no longer we can trust. We all need to follow the will of God. Can forest be the community that is uh, focused on, aimed at, and then totally concentrated on the will of God? I really pray that forest becomes uh, such a community that welcomes everyone, even difficult people, struggling people, with the love of God. Let's pray.